0: restaurant unstoppable episode 910 with kristen barnett
1: how to make good food at scales ultimately about where does that food come from can you buy it at the right price and can you get it to your restaurants and that's the question i had a blast answering
0: are you ready for it factors success stories and more all in one place. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number 7 dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry-leading labor management for free. This episode is brought to you by MyRestaurantCFO.com. MyRestaurantCFO partners with restaurants to simplify financial management by offering full-service bookkeeping, payroll, and CFO services. Beyond MyRestaurantCFO's understanding of all the things that ill and plague a restaurant, Restaurant MyRestaurantCFO realizes that restaurants are like snowflakes. No two are the same, so they avoid the cookie-cutter approach. My Restaurant CFO's goal is to be your partner in success by learning all there is to know about your business and putting together a custom solution that gives you only what you need and to be a guiding hand that helps you achieve your goals. Take action and go to MyRestaurantCFO.com slash unstoppable and when you use that link, you will get a one hour consulting session with the founder and partner, Miguel Miranda, also a past guest on the show. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Trying to meet the demands of in person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend pop menu answering pop menu answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about pop menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, founder and CEO of Hungry House, Kristen Barnett. Kristen, are you feeling unstoppable today? I,
1: I would say so. Yes. I would say with an intro like that. <laughs> All right.
0: <laughs> I am excited for this conversation. You're, we're talking to you today because Corey Maniconi called you out. You used to work with Corey over at Zool. Yep. When I had Corey on the show, I think it was like eight months ago, maybe six months yeah. ago. Um, he had just sold uh Zool to kitchen united it wasn't quite official yet yeah i was going down and uh, when i asked him who he respects and admires and who's doing cool stuff he said you gotta get Kristen barnett on the show from hungry Aww, house yeah. and that's why we're here because we're awesome. following the leads we're we're, we're <laughs> listening to what people are saying and i agree with him you have a really interesting story and i cannot wait to dive in but let's get that success quote uh that, that motivational inspirational ball rolling with that success or mantra what do you got for us
1: um, I would say that the one that drives me forward in the team is really the concept of being hungry itself. Yeah. So I, I, we're about to get this embroidered on some hats, but I think about being always hungry. Mm. You know, yes, we're a hungry house that relates to eating food, but what does it mean to be hungry? And I feel like, um, for myself, it drives me forward to be hungry for more, hungry for better, and hungry to make change. Our team is a bunch of highly motivated individuals that want to see change happen in the industry, want to rethink what it was before. And I think you have to be hungry to do that. You you can't just be okay with the status quo, and so what drives you forward? And it's that like innate urge to do more.
0: Yeah. I think there's a lot of parallels between what you're doing and what I'm doing, so I'm excited <laughs> to get into this. And yeah, like yeah, there, it's just it's like that that drive to be better, hungry, right? right? And yeah. I, that totally echoes with me. Love it. Great way to get this thing started. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Because you have a really a kind of cool background of as a as a professional you worked for some great organizations we already mentioned Zool with Corey Maniconi before that you were with Dig In correct correct and what about before that
1: before that I was actually a management consultant that was my first job out of college okay yeah
0: managing isn't that kind of funny I've always kind of thought that was funny Uh, (laughs) you graduate and you like how many people go straight into becoming consultants yeah
1: like literally you're 22 (laughs) and you're like telling these multi-billion dollar corporations how to how to drive new initiatives you're like I have zero working experience (laughs) I don't get it
0: but uh, I've I've seen that often yeah Uh, so what did you learn is there a time like where you think you really kind of grew as a professional that it makes sense to kind kind of hang out and hover over for a little bit? Was that part yeah. of your life? Yeah. Oh,
1: certainly? I mean, it was certainly that early phase coming out of college um, where truly I had to rethink my entire perception of what my life was going to be. I work in the food industry because I have chronic Lyme disease, actually. Oh, man. And so I was bit by a tick. It was Freaking bastard! Oh yeah, yeah. You're from the Northeast, right? So, and I'm like, I'm yeah. waiting for
0: my time. It's like I'm like, I'm.
1: It's like, bad if you don't catch it, and I, yeah. I unfortunately didn't. And so, I had a very unique college experience, actually, where a lot of my peers were obviously partying, having a great time, as it goes in college. Um, Good and I was on a serious antibiotic regimen, trying to beat this illness. So, couldn't drink most of college, and was really trying to manage it. Graduated was excited to have a very traditional business career um, starting off in consulting, but I quickly relapsed really badly with the Lyme from the stress and travel of being a first year associate in one of those firms. And at that point, it had been like years on like six different antibiotics, anti-malarial pills, like everything. You can't even go out in sunlight. You are you get rashes. Everything tastes like metal. The side effects are just worse than Ugh. like ultimately the disease. It's crazy. So I was like, this just doesn't work. I'm like, something has to change because I keep getting sick. I'm 23. This sucks. And so I took a medical leave and tried dietary change to feel better. Okay. So I went raw vegan, <laughs> not for the faint of heart. <laughs> <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> and it worked. Wow. I was like chugging wheatgrass, only eating between 12 p.m. and 6 p.m. It's a pretty intensive program. Like this wasn't like, oh, I'm just going paleo to feel better. No, this was um like a medical intervention, at least with the way I approached it. Yeah. And in 20 days, I went from barely being able to walk to walking with no pain. Wow. I like my brain had been shutting down. I couldn't stay awake more than 45 minutes. What's the chemistry behind that? What is it? Did you I mean, I'm assuming you did
0: a lot of research to figure (laughs) out why it works or to push yourself to that. extreme. So what is the what's the rationale? What's the the science behind it?
1: So essentially the theory there is you're doing extreme reduction of inflammation and um, a lot of things inflame you like eating does when you're eating meat and dairy and processed foods and Sugar, and pizza. <laughs> all those good things, right? It turns out they're pretty inflammatory. And so all you might have heard the, all this. The with, good stuff. I know. You like you have to avoid nightshades and all this stuff. So <laughs> it's basically like reducing as much um like inflammatory load to your body through your dietary change as possible. So your immune system can actually just fix your body, not focus on processing food. Mm. And so redirect the energy. Yeah. It's just like, uh, how can you devote the, your body's immune system, 100% fighting illness. And so you think about reducing inflammation everywhere else. And so that's like rest and, and, and not being stressed out and reading a book and walking around outside, but also the dietary change. And so, um, yeah, it was it was like a complete rethinking of my life structure.
0: So that's what got you into the industry because you, Well,
1: yeah, I mean like I came out of this experience and I was like I had always loved food. I yeah. mean, I like minored in it in college and tried to take all the classes I could in the hotel school um, and and all this stuff. I was so
0: did you want to work in restaurants? Was that the goal or did you want to work with restaurants?
1: No, I I, I honestly thought I'd have a business career and then I'd like retire and open a specialty grocery store. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. I was just like, I, mean, I know food's going to be part that's, of this. That,
0: that's such a like a like a common story though within the restaurant industry.
1: Yeah, like in a, a lot of people do that. Yeah, My
0: plan was to be a commercial pilot and resign from aviation early and open a restaurant. Like, yeah. Uh, it's not a good idea. <laughs> is it? Yeah. You kind
1: of <laughs> (laughs) realize like maybe you should do this later when you've had a very stable (laughs) career which is why we're
0: here today to talk people to give people a real perspective of what it takes (laughs) and to empower them so yeah so from there okay so this is around the time you get hired with dig in
1: yeah so i basically came out of this intensive experience and was like i'm gonna work in the food industry you know for me it was like i just had a completely life-changing um, process of using dietary change to feel better. And I thought about what it would look like to make good food at scale. And yeah. so I looked around for brands that I felt like were really putting that idea into action. And Dig was top of my list. Yeah,
0: they've definitely been on my radar for some time. I was trying to line up an interview, like even like four or five years ago. Yeah. I remember really great organization. So what was it about Dig that really pulled you in? What would the, What are they doing?
1: So I really liked the idea that they made healthy well-sourced vegetables accessible through like a lunch driven price point and so was making vegetable focused plant-based eating really accessible and also really cool like delicious and delicious that's the thing is like i loved i just loved eating there i was a customer and so um they had a very generic job posted for like this leadership program (laughs) and i was like okay i'll go for it um What's and the year? Do you mind time This was twenty. Us? This is 2015. Got it. Um, I officially joined in winter of 2016 then. And I joined answering customer support emails. I was like, give me any task. I'll do it. You know, and, I just want to get in and learn. And you're still doing it. <laughs> you're doing it this morning for yourself? <laughs> yeah, uh, I that mean...
0: end. it's a good skill to have. So.
1: I, I mean, connecting with the customers obviously the bedrock of what you do. So what do they teach you?
0: Get get into like how they approach that. And like, I mean, that's a testament right there. Having a whole team dedicated to engaging your, your customers online, knowing that online presence, what do they teach you about how to do that? Right.
1: So I think a lot of it was, um, essentially addressing the customer as having valid concerns or valid thoughts and making sure that they feel heard, even if they could be totally wrong, as we know. I know this is like always a debate. Is the customer always right? Or is it your team that's always right? For us, it was like, actually, they just want to be heard. Mm -hmm. And our approach always was, how do we get them back for a second visit, no matter what? Because They could still be really angry or they could be, you know, just confused. But what we need more than anything is their desire to come back, to rewrite their experience with the brand. And so that was our approach that we always took. So whether that was like a nice little coupon or just... That's my next question. Yeah. How how do you get
0: them back? So what's that process like? do you just go for the kill and like offer a great deal or do you have like tiers of things that you have to do?
1: Yeah, we would definitely have tiers. So okay. there were smaller, like, okay, $5 off your next meal. Also, we're working with smaller price points here because yeah. it's fast casual. Our average check size was like $13, 14 yeah. And so we would offer $5 off or, or the next meal free. It really depended on the situation. If they literally didn't have their food delivered, obviously that's a refund. But yeah. then we'd also <laughs> give a discount to come back. Yeah. And so things like that. I mean, it was also really formative. Now, I mean, at the time, obviously, I was like, customers are crazy. This is like a wild job. Um, What do you mean at
0: the time? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it still is.
1: Don't get me wrong. but, But it's also been a really amazing... Kind of foundational experience that I had that I've been able to look back to, where I'm like, everything makes sense because a lot of the issues we were dealing with were actually delivery-driven issues. Yeah,
0: I was, I was seeing because I mean, uh, as the online orderings is swelling, so is yeah. the demand for online ordering and delivery, right? Which I'm assuming is the, what sets you up to for a career or to to transition to Zool. That's probably what Corey maybe saw on you when you applied? I don't know. What, oh, not guys, even. Well, so that, that
1: was, that was a very short time at dig where I was doing customer support okay, yeah, so because
0: 2015 to when?
1: Yeah, I was there until summer 2019. Okay. So and three
0: years, that's not too short of a time.
1: Yeah. That's and
0: it's a good run. That's like a oh, was it? a lifetime for the restaurant. I mean, industry.
1: yeah, And we tripled in size. <laughs> we went from 11 units to about 35. Okay. And so I was I was answering customer support emails and I was like, this is great to learn and understand how things work. But I started helping out the accounting team with all the financial modeling because okay. I had the consulting experience and they That's were like, right. what are you doing on that team? Like, you've got a, like the supply chain needs help. Like we need your Excel skills. And I was like, okay, cool. So ended up going over to the supply chain side yeah. and um, helping out really organizing our entire data infrastructure for looking at how we spent money on food across all of our New York restaurants, and then we were opening up a new region in Boston. And soon after, um, basically, there was a change in leadership. There was no one to run the supply chain department. I had like five months of experience. I ended up becoming head of the supply chain there um, at age 24, which was absolutely surreal um, because it was a pretty big budget. We were spending about... Maybe twelve, so we, we thirteen million Boston, dollars. Is what you're
0: saying? So you, you were in New York. They opened in Boston, and you yeah. moved Boston to lead the supply chain. No,
1: director. I was doing this all from New York. So for oh, the whole okay. company. Got it. Got it. Got and it. so we, I, I basically then, um, found this perfect balance of the analytical skills from being a consultant with my passion for supply chain and good food at scale, and and how to make good food at scale is ultimately about. Where does that food come from? Can you buy it at the right price, and can you get it to your restaurants? And that's the question I had a blast answering yeah. for that time.
0: This is a hot subject. This is something that is near and dear to my heart because we're really like what what I'm trying to do with the show is to show that there's a bounce. Yeah, that we can do the right thing. We can source locally. We can we can c- contribute to fixing the broken food system and still be profitable and scale. Like how do you? Yeah, how do you? Be, find this balance of doing the right thing supporting a a, a healthy food system yep. and scale and be profitable fiscally responsible. <laughs> it's a hard thing to do. Oh, it's this. hard. So what did you learn about like how to do that?
1: I mean, I really believe this to this day Dig is the one company that's really figured this out. And you
0: were a big part of that. So do you Oh, uh, there was like other team members some, too, yeah. but
1: I mean, it for so, so it's really hard when you're below five units, I would say. Your purchasing volume is probably not going to be something that can really warrant specific contracts to really start to negotiate prices. Not to mention, you might not have enough, like, of a budget for your corporate team to really dedicate a lot of resources to those questions. So it's hard, one to five units, to really make those changes. After that like that point, though, it starts to get easier because your volume is meaningful. You can start to really negotiate contract pricing. You can start to think in advance and plan. Um, you know, what we what we did, which was I thought was really cool. is we would set our budgets for the year. We'd say, OK, we think our food costs are going to be X percent. Um, then we basically were like, okay, what's all the cool stuff we want to do? We want to fix our oils. We want to work on our carrot program in Massachusetts. We want to improve our grains. We want to change our chicken sources. And we would start to develop like an approach to, um, let's say like, Carrots, for example. This was my favorite example of one of our our projects to really impact like equity in farming uh, and localized farming in Massachusetts. We split our carrot volume across four different farmers. More complex, absolutely, but we just knew at the end of the day, our price per pound had to be like, let's call it 62 cents a pound. And so we're like, okay, well, these uh, really young queer farmers in Massachusetts, they are more expensive because they are earlier in their farming journey and don't have scale. Well, actually, we can give part of our contract to them. We can give part of our contract to a cheaper source and we can start to give them the security of a huge contract that's absolutely stable and pay their higher price because we can also source from somewhere else to actually help blend that. And so for us, it was great because we could then increase the diversity of our farming set and um make an impact with farms that we wanted to see grow and benefit from these stabilized contracts. I mean again, this is super advanced. like this is much later in the journey, but it was some of the cool things we we're able to do.
0: How I mean, why aren't there organizations that exist exist solely to them there must be? That, or like the middleware <laughs> yeah. between the Well you would the think the distributors
1: could do this, right? Or or a company that just so
0: is just wants to fix the system and helps be a middleman or a middlewoman between the people involved, right? Like, Yeah.
1: I mean, there's um, Zone 7 in New Jersey. There are other... Um, there are groups that have tried to do this. It's ultimately really difficult because okay. of the cost of transportation. Usually, it's the logistics that get you um, as well as obviously establishing the market and um you know, convincing restaurants to have more complexity in their operations from a purchasing standpoint, it's not going to be as straightforward as just ordering through Cisco yeah. every day, right? Um, we had a lot of flexibility because we actually had our own distribution center in Hunts Point in the Bronx, so we were moving like easily over a hundred thousand pounds of vegetables through that um that facility every week, and our farms could drop off at their convenience. Basically, we would then repackage and distribute cases. We were our own distributor of produce, essentially.
0: So it would come into a, like a commissary where yep. you would repackage. Uh, how many stores? You said between 11 and, th- and 35 during your time there? Yeah. So it would come in, uh, you'd package it, and basically divvy up what store needed what. Yeah. So you would... Yeah, that's...
1: We see. basically became a distributor. Okay. Um, That's how we solved it, uh, okay. which was
0: crazy. Uh, I mean, it would be cool to kind of like maybe get dig in just like to go deep in how that they, how they're solving this problem. I don't know if they're public with how they do that. Maybe it's a, a competitive intellectual property type. Yeah. Thing. But I hope people are more willing to share this because it's a solution to a, a broken Absolutely. issue. You know? So I
1: maybe. think it's great to have seen from the inside, how you build it because we were building without a blueprint. Really? I mean, we were like, we want these vegetables. All right. We're going to have to self distribute, you know, and mm. make sure our restaurants can access them. Cause you know, part of the problem, too, in a New York City restaurant, especially, you don't have a lot of space. And so if you can only order from a farm once a week, receiving all that product at once can often be a space constraint if you're walking yeah. small and all of that. Yeah. So we were able to largely solve that through self-distributing daily.
0: So like, so were you guys doing prep, too? So when you got the food delivered from the farm to this commissary, would you just kind of divvy it up as raw goods or would you process? do some We would prop- process, oh, too. Yeah, so,
1: yeah, we would essentially cut down... Broccoli, um, You know Heads into The actual florets yeah. uh, We would Shred our Brussels sprouts If we were doing A shredded Brussels sprout dish You know We would take Some early prep steps We would uh, Chop the sweet potatoes I mean that was a huge one Yeah um for uh, us it makes
0: sense to do that in one spot and to, yeah and to, yeah what about stocks and things like that were you doing anything like
1: yeah, that? yeah we or? would make marinades there um sauces yeah marinade sauces uh not all of them some were obviously better produced fresh at the restaurant that was great you know we'd do a pesto there and other things but like an aioli or sriracha we were doing big batches and tilt skillets up there it was awesome so
0: is five the magic number where you think you would need to get to to have a, a a similar model where you have a receiving what would you call it the commissary? The, what was yeah what you did call it?
1: We called it the supply center. The supply center. Yeah.
0: So yeah, like wh- where in your opinion does a restaurant need to be evolutionary in you know, its evolutionary path? Yeah. to sustain that.
1: I mean, it, I I can't speak to every restaurant's finances and how they would think about it, what their volume is. You know, for us, it I. For us and other fast casuals that I've spoken to throughout New York City, it's usually around that four to six unit mark. You're starting to think, hey, I'm producing this sauce in like massive quantities at each of my locations. What if it was in one place? And then yeah. starting to pull labor out of your restaurants and centralize it for items that need to be uh, very specific to your brand? Yeah um, it can help a lot with that. So
0: did did dig? do anything with co-ops prior to that five location mark to help have some kind of purchasing? Is that that the solution if you're not quite there?
1: Yeah. So Dig actually around the five unit mark was an entirely different restaurant chain. I don't know if you know the origin story. I I don't know. It was a fast casual called The Pump Energy Foods, <laughs> which um, essentially was a very like 1990s, early 2000s version of health food. So it was turkey sausage, nice. egg whites, smoothies, <laughs> like very different than Dig. Um, it was then bought by a private equity firm and then rebranded as dig in when they realized that consumers really valued where their food came from. Yeah. So that rebranding happened in 2011 and then basically it just took off from there.
0: Branding can do a lot. I could ask more and more questions. <laughs> I think this is such a great brand, but we're here to talk about hungry house. Yeah. Uh, so there was one more stop in between. you Yeah. Uh, working at Dig in Hungary House. So what was that? That was Zool. Yeah. And when so, did you join Zool?
1: 2019? I joined Zool fall of twenty nineteen. Fall
0: of twenty nineteen. And how did you meet Corey? Did you apply for the job? Did you guys come across each other just yeah. in the, so, the industry?
1: I ended up at Dig becoming the kind of Jill of all trades there. I was working on different teams. We did supply chain, then menu development, and then I was running strategic operations, which is basically standing up new kind of departments and projects ended up getting involved in our ghost kitchen project, met Corey and Sean, the co-founders of Zool because we were starting our own ghost kitchen and virtual brand. We didn't even call it that at the time. Like this was early on. Yeah. And they were just launching Zool. They were um, building the site in Soho, the ghost kitchen. They toured me through it. And I was like, this is amazing. I fully believed at that point, having seen Diggs' experience with food delivery, that it was absolutely the future. I mean, it was just exploding for us. And we were not investing in marketing at all. And so I was like, OK, this is it met core and sean didn't think much more of it but then i decided to leave dig to just pursue greener pastures understand other business models in the food industry I was consulting for a few companies reconnected with them and i was like yeah okay like i really get this now and i fully believe that ghost kitchens are going to be the biggest thing that happened in food i was talking to all my peers and and other chefs and they're like we hate food delivery we hate the platforms and i was like that's the opportunity and so i just decided i wanted to be in the middle so of wait, it so what
0: was the opportunity the fact that everyone hated the platforms what do you yeah, mean it was that just was just like opportunity?
1: you know food delivery was clearly on fire with consumers people yeah. loved it and it was growing and restaurateurs and and chefs i spoke to didn't understand how those platforms worked. They didn't understand why their listings were wrong. Um, They didn't understand the fee structure. I mean, I didn't either. I was like, yeah, totally. Like I agree with all these points, but I want to figure it out. You know, that's
0: really what a lot of consultants are is that they find the problem and they're good at solving them and they, they have the bandwidth to go get the answers. Right. Right.
1: Um, Yeah. And so I, I decided working at Zool, I was employee number four. Um, would be the way for me to get those answers to find myself in like the middle of the storm. Were you hired as the chief operating officer? Was that your role? No, I came in to really speak the language of the restaurants. So because I had run my own like ghost kitchen brand and set up at dig, they really wanted someone to come in, work with the restaurants to refine their business model within the dark kitchen, within the, the ghost kitchen facility. Help them be successful and understand what that looked like, so we could replicate it and make sure that our tenants love their experience being inside Zool. So you're throwing on
0: you're throwing around a lot of like uh, expressions right now. There's ghost <laughs> kitchen. There's dark kitchen. Yeah, uh, dark was- kitchen is a, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Is just a kitchen that is operating under another brand, but it's just it's like almost like a a separate line just to kind of take the pressure off the main. La- is that not necessarily
1: so, so the way I think about it is ghost kitchens and dark kitchens are kind of uh, analogous terms in the sense that they both refer to not having that front of house piece for customers to come up and interact with. So, is you. It the
0: same thing? Just different term, yeah, just different terms because okay. I know there's different but then ways there's virtual brand, and so yeah. that's
1: different. So, virtual brand is a brand that could be cooked out of a Ghost kitchen or dark kitchen, but it also could be cooked out of a restaurant. It still means you can't access it as a consumer. It's probably never existed before. And it's really only exists on the delivery platforms versus yeah. like a brand like Sweet Green was operating out of Zool as a ghost kitchen, but Sweet Green operates brick and mortars as well. So it's not a virtual brand. So when you
0: say Zool or Sweet Green was operating out of uh, Zool's ghost kitchen, were they doing Sweet Green food or were they executing other? Menu item or other so recipes. They
1: right? were doing Sweet Green. So Sweet Green was cooking out of Zool's multi operator Ghost Kitchen. Zool basically operated a nine kitchen commissary yeah. where all these brands came in with their own teams to cook their own food. Now, some of those teams cooked other food too. Sarge's Deli was one of our operators and they cooked a bunch of different virtual brands for Next Bite and other companies sweet green just cooked sweet green and so they were in that space
0: yeah i mean so this is when you are really starting to learn about the world of virtual kitchens ghost kitchens dark kitchens yes. whatever you want to call them um, <laughs> you, where were you internally with how, how did you feel about this new market I knew, I, knew, yeah. I knew there was a lot of opportunity there but how did you feel about it were you <laughs> like do i like this is a clearly the future but do i like that
1: Oh, absolutely. I was, okay. I had all those thoughts in my head. You know, I, I, I really value, again, like my operating kind of mode is how do I make good food at scale? And I realized that food delivery and and food tech was the, the answer to the scale part. So I was like, okay, let me put the good food kind of supply chain thing to the side right now. And let me understand the food tech revolution that's happening right now. And, um, Let's just see what's going on. I totally, I mean, I I did not immediately resonate with the concept. Let me tell you that. Why the not? idea of windowless kitchens, there's something about that for me. Um, being in kitchens, uh, it's a very dynamic environment. It started to feel more like factory than like hospitality-driven environments. And I think hospitality is absolutely essential to making food matter. So I was like, okay, this feels a little devoid of hospitality, but let me get in here and see what's going on and how it could be infused with hospitality, how it could feel better. But first you have to understand what it actually is first, before you understand what levers you can pull to make it feel better.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that was, one of the things I would echo or say early on when this was a rise, rising really fast, I was like, yeah, ghost kitchens, at least like there there were soulless, like at least a ghost, a ghost has a soul. You know what I mean? But like, I mean, a dead soul, it a like it's a former
1: it? soul. Yeah, <laughs> some of these brands
0: are just so transactional. Oh my so God, of course. They, just, they, they find somebody with big influence and they go, you have a good yeah, brand. Just slap it on to some chicken
1: wings, whatever, yeah, you know,
0: you know, let's call it, yeah. you know, big celebrity name. I, no, I want to say Shaquille O'Neal it's chicken, but he actually has, a he chicken. actually has. Know, so yeah. yeah but,
1: no, but it was like DJ Polly D's Italian yeah. subs. And I was like, Absolutely not. You know, (laughs) it's just
0: this like way to, you're following the whole process of just going after people who are influencers. Yeah. Followings just to use their influencing to to get people to go online. It's just this path of least resistance bullshit that is so hard to compete with because there's such stupid friggin' people in the world (laughs) that actually do it. But it's like, where's the soul?
1: Where's the soul? And, and I was looking around at like basically the broader space and seeing all these chicken wing brands being launched. And I was like, okay, I've learned the food tech thing, but like, this is really just getting ridiculous at this point there. Every single new virtual brand that gets all this press and hubbub is literally just a derivative supply chain play because it's easy to distribute frozen chicken wings, fry them, toss them in a sauce. Like there's nothing innovative about this. From I mean, there's innovative in the distribution model and maybe like the the way you can now launch these concepts on the platforms. But in terms of actually moving the hospitality industry forward, I felt like this actually isn't for the hospitality industry. This is purely... Transaction. Yeah, like it, it's just like layers of like brand hype it's that... A supply it's a chain. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's
0: a way to move product, cheap product. Exactly. Like, and you get the most bang for your buck because you're tying it to a good brand. Some stupid tween <laughs> is going to go out there and be like, I want the poly D.
1: Yeah. Mr. Beast Burger. Yeah, I mean, so but, but the, do but, they ever get a second order? That's the number one thing that these brands struggle with is actual customer retention. Cause they're going to order the sub or, you know, Mr. Beast Burger for fun. And I can't tell you how many parents and, like people I've talked to have been like, oh, yeah, my little brother forced me to go to get the Mr. Beast burger. And I don't know. It was like coming from God knows where like a Bertucci's and like I'm never <laughs> ordering it again. And I was like, OK, so so that's the current experience. Yeah.
0: The, the cool thing about the world we live in right now is that, yeah, like crazy shit can happen where like the, a fast one can be pulled. But those things. People who are pulling the fast one maybe get like they have a very short runway. Yeah. Because it doesn't take long for people to figure it out.
1: Well, but. here's the thing. Uh, we're all far more digitally native yeah. than I feel like they assume we are. And they're what like, What do you mean by that? More digitally native. Like, we understand now, like, when you search a restaurant or one of these brands and it has like zero reviews on Google, no photos, like you're like, okay, something's a little off here. You don't understand where it comes from, who's behind it. You kind of get the heebie jeebies about what is this? And I believe fundamentally that food needs to be grounded in a real origin story for it to matter. And if you don't see those indicators You're like, okay, like this is like a blurry photo. This is clearly photoshopped, whatever it is. These things are happening with the virtual brands. And I believe that we are smarter now than what maybe these creations, they would have crushed it in 2012, 2013 when it was like the retail revolution. All of a sudden Casper and Warby are selling things online that you never thought you would ever buy online. So maybe it would have worked then. But I think now it's like, yeah, OK, this is fun and glitzy and like you get a bunch of press and a little pop. But actually, we're a lot smarter than ordering products that aren't grounded in reality. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know who's cooking it. And I think these things matter and we're a little bit sharper on understanding what's real and what's not. Yeah. And I mean,
0: something I like to echo is the core of every relation or I just fucked it up.
1: The <laughs> core of
0: every business, the core of business is relationships. It's, yeah. It's, it's human relationships. Absolutely. And if you don't have a, a human relationship that's driving that yeah then like you're saying like are they going to come back is there something sticky there yeah and the stickiness is the human element that you just can't re- like you absolutely. can't recreate that it's why i drive across the country to sit across the table from somebody <laughs> it's why
1: you're here exactly because it's,
0: it's just the good good you just yeah, can't yeah. get it there's no shortcut to that
1: i mean know? absolutely and you know Speaking about the relationship thing, what do we think that third-party delivery did to all the restaurants and even these new virtual brands, connections with consumers? It's watered down like little virtual storefronts that have absolutely no storytelling capability. You have no idea who owns the place. You have no idea where it comes from, why it exists. You're just like optimizing for search terms and there's no stickiness and that's how it's designed mm-hmm. because they want you to be reliant on Uber Eats, on DoorDash, on the platform. Don't connect with that restaurant. Connect with us. Let me give you the perks. Let me give you the, and you, you give know. give us all
0: your data.
1: Yeah. And, and, and use that
0: information to manipulate you even <laughs> further.
1: Or... Right? Or come up with their own virtual brands <laughs> yeah. and distribute them to actually take away business from real restaurants. Yeah. And and this is real. and And so, you know, It it feels like, you know, basically the pandemic was weird because like all of a sudden you just started seeing like chicken wings, one, two, three, one, two, three, chicken wings, wing, 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 wing all the time. And it was like, these are just search terms layered on top of supply chain plays distributed through anonymous storefronts with absolutely no sense of who is behind this concept. And I don't, I, I would like to believe that that is not going to win. And I have to create the future that means they won't win because it, if it's meant to otherwise. be it's up to me as
0: I like to say right and it's so true though if you don't yeah. like what you see be a part of the change yeah and I know Gandhi's quote is so overplayed but be the change you want to see in the world right <laughs> and you're doing it and I think now is a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how you want to create something in that world, but with sold. Anti ghost kitchen ghost kitchen. Today's episode is brought to you by seven shifts. Seven shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at ww.sevenshifts.com/slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S-H-I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We are back, and now we're going to transition the conversation to be talking about how you... I think you you dropped a lot of what you didn't like with Ghost Kitchens on us. Was (laughs) there anything that you didn't get out that you were trying to do differently that hasn't come out yet and what you were trying to recreate in Hungry House?
1: Yeah, I mean, yes. There's one more thing that I noticed in this Ghost Kitchen craze that I felt was pretty... like it it was it was like swept under the rug. It wasn't really talked about. Now we're starting to talk about it in the industry, but it's the fact that a lot of independent operators actually really struggled with the model.
0: How did they... So yes, why did they struggle? You mean like they struggled with like, I don't really like this struggle with it or struggle with just actually grasping how to do
1: it? Yeah, like actually having a successful business in the dark kitchen format. Yeah. Um, When you don't have a storefront, I felt that a lot of the independent operators who have amazing brands, incredible food, they would be like, okay, I'm going to go scale. This is so cheap. No CapEx, like all the benefits that you and I know to be true about ghost kitchens, but they would get in there and it would be immensely difficult to actually gain traction with customers and increase awareness of your brand in that new community because you didn't have a storefront. So I feel like we actually wildly underestimated the power of a sign to literally tell people to search for your brand to buy the food. There's something immensely local about ordering food delivery because of obviously the radius of the drivers and where you can actually deliver. But then also the fact that it comes through your community knowing that you're there and that they can order from you. And then in in without that path to actually acquire customers that know your brand or maybe going to your website or coming up and ordering with a cashier – you end up relying on the third-party delivery platform. So again, everything we were just saying about these anonymized kind of devoid of soul storefronts digitally that you acquire customers through, but also the fact that you end up with no data, you end up with incredibly high commissions, and we all know how thin restaurant margins are. And if all your revenue and all your customer discovery is coming through the third-party platforms with 30% commission attached it's impossible for you to actually break even. And so this was the math that was really challenging for a lot of the operators that were super excited about the model with tons of good reason. But ultimately, when you maybe don't have as many resources, you don't have a full marketing team running Google Ads campaigns and you know social advertising, how are you going to acquire the customers? And yeah. that was something that was... I, I, it was very few and far between that you saw smaller independent operators be able to answer that successfully. Yeah, so
0: now you have this this picture of what you don't like with with what you think is broken. Uh, with the industry and you're thinking to yourself, we want to, let's create a hybrid model. Yeah. Of we're taking the best of both worlds. It kind of, that's what I'm kind of seeing. So yep. paint that vision that you had went back in, was it 2020 when you started to really kind of, or is it 2021?
1: No, this is 2021. Okay, yeah. It's
0: 2021 is when you're like, let's go do something. Like, yeah.
1: Paint that picture of what you wanted to create. <laughs> so I basically, you know, this was after what, maybe the 40th virtual chicken wing brand launching and I just <laughs> yeah. started talking to, other chef friends of mine and influencers who had amazing like followings, half a million followers, book deals, whatever about ghost kitchens, or they were coming to me being like, what do I do about ghost kitchens? Cause I think this is exciting and could work for me and my brand with my following. Cause I'm not going to go open a restaurant, but I don't know where to start or who to work with. And I don't trust them and they seem sketchy, but like, shouldn't this work for me? And that was kind of the starting point. So I, um, Essentially, it was like, okay, well, who would I suggest them to work with? Uh, who, who is fo- focusing on sourcing? Who could actually manage the quality that I think that these chefs who have brands built on food require? And the more I like, thought about it, I realized none of these ghost kitchens were actually built for chefs. Chefs, like not restaurants. They were yeah. all built as infrastructure plays for restaurant operators. Yeah. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a ton of innovation that went into that model. But actually building for chefs. And so when you actually started to think about that individual, and what they value, and this is like from all my conversations with chefs over the years, you care about the story behind the ingredients. You care about quality and execution because that's directly tied to your personal brand you care about being able to create access to your food because fundamentally food is an experiential thing for your followers or or whoever is excited about you. And, um, and the Seeds of Hungry House grew from that. So basically, I started to think about what does it look like to actually take the ghost kitchen out of the shadows? That's the sketchiest part, I think, first of all, is that no one knows... Like, Cloud Kitchens doesn't even call itself Cloud Kitchens in many of the facilities. It has, like, you know, the the South Financial District food hall is what it's called. I mean, it's just layers and layers of obscurity. And for us, we wanted to bring it out to the front because we actually thought about what if being a ghost kitchen wasn't a bad thing? What if it was a brand you were proud to associate with because they have very clear values. They care. We care about sourcing. We care about transparency. We talk about it. We have quality control measures in place and we own that and our teams are executing the food. So you know, who's cooking it Yeah. and to the consumer, they know that all of the chefs that we work with, it's a collaboration. They get to say we've partnered with hungry house and that's the key difference the final piece of why that actually makes a lot of sense, too, is a lot of chefs who are building huge online followings and really thinking about themselves differently. And we can go more into that later. But they're they're not going to know how to set up DoorDash and Grubhub and integrate those platforms and create their own online ordering website, nor do they have the time or desire to do that. So by pulling the ghost kitchen entity, Hungry House, out of the shadows and bringing it forward, we also make it really easy for them to drop their brand into our platform we have our whole brand architecture is all about featuring their stories who they are their own brand identity on the platform yeah but they don't have to come to us like another restaurant operator would with like the full website and online ordering and all of that built We do all of that for them they're
0: literally just providing the story and the recipe
1: yeah is that too va- is that too I mean, it's simplistic, but yeah, I mean that we want to keep it simple yeah. because that's actually what matters and what was missing, yeah. from this whole industry. What, what
0: I like about this, what I think is interesting with this approach that you've created, and it's something that I've been saying a lot, um, that chefs in the relationship between restaurant tour and chef, I think is going to transform going into the future where we've gotten so good at systems and processes like we're so much better at that now than we were 15 20 years ago really what you need a chef for is that intellectual property that's Mm -hmm. the skill to to create to make something unique that you can associate with your brand and i think long term it's far more affordable to pay a chef twenty thousand dollars to come in and help build a menu right for you know Two months that's a good mm-hmm. paycheck for a chef that's that's yeah. a livable weight like that's but that's over a year that's twenty thousand dollars I mean what is that what do you pay a chef now eighty thousand a hundred thousand dollars in the city a yeah. hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars you're saving so much money when you don't ha- when you can just pay for the intellectual property and the chefs right. get to create constantly in this model yeah you know? so I kind of see what you've built as another way to give that intellectual property to the chef but you can do it in a a, a much more one-off way. Oh yeah! That you can also. It's just an interesting way to like think of your creativity as an intellectual property. You know? Absolutely, it's like a stepping stone to like um, the like tokenizing your food almost, where we're kind yeah. of moving in that direction ah,
1: too. Look at you bringing in Web three All over right, here. So, no, but but absolutely, yeah. and I actually. You know, I've been talking a lot, I feel like, about the bifurcation and and someone just wrote about it. I was super excited. Restaurant business just did like a big piece on the bifurcation of the industry to like extremely tech enabled, scalable concepts um, that are all about like fast, casual, quick serve, all that. And then completely experiential sit down. The middle is hollowing out, right? Um, Because here you can command huge price for the experience, the site, the Instagram photos, the experience of the food, you know. You see, all, it's all built for Instagram now. And, and then on the other side, it's like, okay, what's the scale of infrastructure? I've actually never heard someone talk about it in the way that you just did, which is also the bifurcation of the chef and the restaurant. I... Really believe that the chefs of the future are going to be so different than the chefs of the past that everyone's going to know of, that's going to influence the culture, especially with the, the way things are going. Yeah. Like,
0: I talked a lot about how good we've gotten in that process. Like, we have robots on the way, and the one thing you <laughs> say, robotics exactly. absolutely, like yeah, the, the one thing that they still can't do is create, and, yeah, and that is the unique selling proposition that humans have. We yep. are, in the sense like gods because you look up the definition of a god it's a creator you know and like (laughs) that's the one thing we do is we create that robots still don't have that on us you know so i think if you by recognizing your ability to create and leaning into that and valuing that that's where i think that's where chefs are gonna have value in the future uh, or one other vertical of value
1: i mean i i think of the chefs of the future as being omni-channel food brands yeah they themselves, because they'll probably have consulted for restaurants, they'll maybe have a little CPG line of snack, whatever, spice mixes, things like that, or, you know, dry mixes for baking. They'll have licensing deals with Hungry House, ideally. Yeah, I- <laughs> but merch lines, they'll do pop-ups. They'll Brands will pay them to throw dinners and bring their brand to life through the lens of that person's take on food. This is already happening. It's definitely early stages But I believe that people who are building careers in food have a very different approach today and a very different idea of what it will look like than 10 years ago because it's no longer, I feel, the like the beacon of success is having, you know, 20 restaurants that whatever in this multi-concept restaurant group, that is still the dream for some. But I think a lot look at maybe that, but they're also like, well, what if it did look like, and what does it look like if I have, you know, also these brand partnerships, what does it look like for me to have a huge social media following? What does it look like for me to actually get on TV shows? Do I need to have 20 restaurants to do that? And I think the answer is starting to become no. Yeah, And that's, that is a tectonic shift. And I think that there is some discomfort in the industry because there are obviously chefs who have been like, I've cut my teeth in the old industry. It sucked, obviously. And these chefs are completely hijacking that path. What do you mean by that? These chefs meaning? Like new chefs that are using social media, up and coming chefs who are building huge followings, but maybe have never operated their own restaurant. Yeah. But yet they're getting insane opportunities to tell stories through food. And that's still what a chef fundamentally does, right? It's the act of creation. Why does this food exist? And the chef is able to give meaning to that answer. But you're able to now do that across a variety of medium. And I think that that is like a very different path than before.
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 this this stuff has been out there. I mean, I I not to toot my own horn, but like <laughs> when I was looking to become a restaurant tour to work in the restaurant industry, yeah. I resigned from aviation when I was 26. I went to school for marketing and hospitality. I started to listen to a ton, a ton of entrepreneurial podcasts yeah. and personal growth podcasts where people are sharing how they're making money online. And I'm saying to myself, I want to become a restaurant tour. I can't afford to do that, but I can afford to buy a microphone and start interviewing people and finding how, how, how other people became a restaurant tour. Yeah. And then I can use that money to, then invest in my own <laughs> restaurant so yes it's, it's this the point i'm trying to make is there's so much opportunity to make money online and to, to think outside the box and yeah. to use new leverage points yeah um, to, to, to to get different angles of entry and it's that we're finally starting to catch on to it right you know? and i feel like right. 10 years ago i saw that these these are prop, like building a yeah. brand that, what do you need to, to build a restaurant a million dollars yeah what do you need to build a brand a voice
1: yeah I mean, what an amazing idea, yeah. right? And I feel that now, like working with the the chefs that I do, you're absolutely right. Like the the barrier to entry to have an impact through food, I'm just like really excited about the fact that these new voices can shine because it's no longer the million bucks, mm-hmm. right? To then have a restaurant, have a space, and that's how you tell your story. You can now do that directly and find people that, Care about your take on food and want to support it, and then find different ways to support it. Maybe that still ends in a restaurant, but that path is now like more open, I guess, in a way, or it just is like more diverse. I mean, more voices can thrive, I feel like, with the idea that you can have an impact through just getting a microphone. Yeah.
0: So, with this model, paint the picture of your model right now. Yeah. So how does it
1: work? So, essentially, we work with a chef. Yeah. They uh, will we'll align on, do we share the same values? Like, what are your goals for your own business? What are your values? I mean, we really look at four key things um, that differentiate us from a traditional ghost kitchen. Transparency, first and foremost. <laughs> That's why we have storefronts. But
0: aren't ghost transparent? I don't get it.
1: <laughs> um, transparency, quality. So, quality of our decision-making when it comes to sourcing of execution in the kitchen of training and educating our employees, all that, um, sustainability. So actually making choices that ensure that we are contributing positively back into the food ecosystem through supporting, farms that think about their own sustainable farming practices or whether it is just our use of compostable, Um, you know, doing our best. And it's always an incremental process there. um, But making sure that that's always front and center and even looking at the chefs that we work with, that they value that as well. Um, And then diversity. For us, we very consciously focus on curating Chefs that look different than the traditional, like I feel like the the white male chef of the past that you know is standing like with their arms crossed and a white chef coat in a kitchen. Like we want to completely like blow up that idea of what it looks like to be a really impactful chef, and so we work on making sure our voices that we work with are incredibly diverse.
0: Transparency, quality, sustainability, and diversity. Yes, core values. I love that. Um. So you
1: are. So you're quoted
0: as saying, um, you wanted to make on your website you want to make sustainable and convenient food. Yeah. So when you hear those two things it's like it's usually it's one or the other, right. right? So I think we kind of got into it earlier but how how are you doing convenient food sustainably?
1: So this goes back to my experience at Dig. I really think about how we essentially looked at our purchasing budget and where our food dollars went to allocate them to the people that we believe should be successful in farming and producing. Whether it was the Maine Grains project out in Maine that's rethinking, you know, domestic grain production, or whether it was allocating or purchasing dollars to Happy Valley Meat Company that has one of the few independent small slaughterhouses that allows them to open up, you know, a whole new ecosystem of, you know, this grass-fed um, beef farming in Pennsylvania and other states. Um, we've taken that same approach here. I think it's really important obviously we're smaller so we don't have as big dollars to go and command a huge budget but taking that approach of thinking through our dollars is going into as being part of our decision making to make a more sustainable future and then bringing that to our chefs who want to have that same impact but maybe wouldn't have the experience of working at a dig in to know how to do that when they got started mm-hmm. we then let them stay in their lane yeah, I mean, they're creative, they're creative. Yeah, but we also want their intake. So yeah. sometimes they're like, okay, I work. Like we have a beautiful partnership with Smallhold, the mushroom supplier, um, mushroom grower. They have this farm in, in Brooklyn and they've worked with Woldy, our Filipino chef. Now we work really closely with them on sourcing things. Um, we really do look at this as a collaboration. There's definitely, yes, we have our lanes of specialty, but the magic of the model is actually the collaborative way to make this make these dishes come to life and also land at a price point between 10 and $16. Yeah. We, I, I want our food to be something that our customers can buy three to five times a week and not feel bad about spending that money yeah. because a lot of the other ghost kitchens are just like, you know, as we talked about like kitschy one-off purchases that are driven by a celebrity imp- like celebrity based impulse that to me, again, doesn't feel like long term impact. What I think is impact is a customer that loves your brand, loves the chefs you work with, and you've priced it right so they can actually support it time and time again. Yeah.
0: And I think I kind of got into a little bit of a rabbit hole because we, we had you discuss or describing the, what. Hungry House looked like what it was. Oh yes, yes. The structure. We can easily so, go into that. So, so but the you're, chefs you're dropping great stuff on us.
1: So no, so it. the structure is though they'll essentially say, "Hey, these are like my ten signature recipes I've always wanted to like make into real dishes." Yeah. Um, we'll nick some because you know maybe you know a lentil stew is not right for summer <laughs> and things yeah. like that. But then we enter into a recipe development process with one of our Hungry House chefs where we. Essentially start to put this dish in a takeout focused format. So So you have your creative chef that
0: comes yep. in with an idea and then you have an on uh uh, in-house chef that yep. helps then say, okay, that's looking at this dish from a creative perspective. Yep. Now let me look at it from a menu-costing perspective.
1: Absolutely. And an operational feasibility. Like, yeah. what is batching going to look like? Is this going to hold on the line? Like, what's the pickup when someone orders it? So
0: it's the left-right side of the brain, chefs, you guys. Yeah. Like the side, and now we have the logistics. And side.
1: I want the creatives to go as wild as possible because I think that that's, like, the magic of it. And then we... I'm very clear when we got into this process, like the shape of your dish is going to change because oftentimes the dishes that they're sending to us were like their recipes in a Word doc that were maybe put together for a collab blog post with another brand, or it was executed in a pop-up and it was a one-time thing, or the format was totally different and it was served family style. So we translate that into... Uh, individual like bowl or dish formats that again, hit our price point, but are also like balanced meals. So do we need a vegetable on this dish? What's the garnish going to look like? You know, how do we um, balance like grains and protein and make this something that a consumer would want to eat for lunch or dinner and just order like they would from like a sweet green or a dig in or another fast casual. Um We go through that process and we are constantly talking about, are we okay with this change? Um, Or can we make this change work in terms of the costing perspective? And then our chef, um, the hungry house chef understands those constraints. We work through all the prep recipes, the batching, the marinades, like all of that. We then do one final approval um, we have a series of tastings and a final approval with the packaging. We understand what the format is. This is a 28-ounce bowl, 32-ounce bowl. We go into all the details. And then we basically hand it off to um, our chef to train our team. And then we go live.
0: Yeah. So um, so what, we talked a lot about the intangible elements, like the, the idea of having a chef come, the, the creation side of it. What about the technological side of the platform this is built on? Yeah. So you have the, we're sitting in, this is your first brick and mortar?
1: This is our second, second brick yeah, second.
0: Okay. So, are you maintaining the first, or yes. are you okay? So, so
1: we have two locations now. So it's it's online. Yes,
0: it's in the form of a website. Yes, you have it was a uh, hungry. Oh, I have orderhungryhouse.com. Thank you very much, orderhungryhouse. <laughs> dot um, That's like your digital platform. Yeah. Um, then you have the brick and mortars, mm-hmm. and you also do pop ups. Right. That's another.
1: We throw um, events, but there events. Yeah. We throw events. And does that yes, happen kind of at up, your brick
0: and mortar? Is, your, is that where they happen at the first brick and mortar?
1: Yeah. So we essentially, so, so our website exists. That's correct. And, and you can basically buy food on that website for delivery. If you're in the delivery zone originating from one of our two locations. Got it. So we now have the location in Brooklyn, which services most of Brooklyn. We have a really large delivery zone there. And then we have this one here in the West Village, and we can service most of Manhattan, you know, at least from Tribeca up to 40th Street. And so um, people are discovering us either through the brick and mortar coming up, being like, wow, this is really interesting. These chefs look super cool. Or I've heard of this chef. Oh my God, I follow Pierce or whatever. Um, or they're discovering us through social media. So we're
0: talking about these um, digital frontage the digital signage is, is what's what's rolling through you. So you have the the storefront, the windows, and you have these digital boards. Yeah. Are they just of the chefs in like the features? Is that what's going on?
1: Yeah. So we for our storefronts actually try to mimic the digital experience. Okay. This is a big thing that was super important in our own brand creation because of the cognitive dissonance for most other ghost kitchens where God forbid you go and try to pick up, you know, uh, Wiz Khalifa's Hot Box by Wiz Tater Tots dishes. You know, you're going to find yourself at a Friendly's or something. (laughs) Like, where am I? For us, uh, it has to be consistent throughout. So the customer journey originates from, let's say, digitally, the chef, uh, Woldy, and his Instagram. You end up on the Hungry House website, and it says Hungry House on the top. But then it has this huge feature about Woldy. Photos, the story of where he comes from, why his food exists you know, what he does, then, you know, let's say you come to pick up, you order food for pickup, you come to Hungry House and you see the same architecture. It's the Hungry House sign, cute neon sign, of course. And then you actually have, you know, four big boards with each of their brands underneath that and their menu items associated. So we always try to go for Hungry House is like encapsulating things, so you always have that consistency of you know where the food is coming from, you know who's behind it. Yeah. But then we feature the chefs within that context.
0: So you're like one part online ordering, uh, one part live events company where you have your celebrity, your rock stars, your, <laughs> your, your, your entertainment, which is the chef, yeah. who's coming in cooking that, that mm-hmm. day. And that's considered your pop-up. And then in the back, in the background, you have the kitchens working around the clock, executing these creations that your, your chefs come and promote yep. the events. Yes. Is that kind of, I yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, our events right now, we're going to be growing that significantly through the next year. We've done this traditionally as just dropping the new season. So that's what we call each batch of our collabs. So we debuted season one with obviously the yep. launch of the company <laughs> season two debuted in April. Um, and that's where we do this big season launch party. So we, Essentially, invite obviously the chefs are there. They invite their own communities of either like food writers or supporters or friends. And then we come and basically celebrate the launch of their food. Everyone gets to try it, taste it, all that. Is this
0: passive income for the chefs from that point on, essentially? Yeah.
1: So essentially, it's a royalty deal. Yeah.
0: So break down that structure.
1: Yeah, they essentially get paid a percentage of sales of their items. So our hope too is that this model actually makes it more economically feasible for chefs to have the... Passive income. Yeah, to have passive income that they can just count on each month and also have that financial freedom to take on the variety of projects that they do, right?
0: So is it case by case with each chef? The more presence a chef has, can they demand a higher... Percentage on the royalties, or so far,
1: it's pretty even. I would say I expect that that could change in the future. But what we've also worked really hard to create is just making the value of the partnership with Hungry House as valuable as possible. Yeah. And so we actually have far more demand for our slots than we could feasibly execute here. Yeah. We right now have five main food brands we're cooking, as well as our ice cream brand and our CPG brand. I'm not comfortable with going too much higher than that. It depends on menu to menu how many we can fit in a given season. But we are inherently capped by our own operational capabilities because, as you probably well know, like operating a restaurant is difficult to do it profitably, to manage labor, to make sure a team is not overwhelmed. So I can't have 100 menu items and pretend like we're going to do that successfully. Yeah. So we cap it. And so what we're able to do because of that is drum up a lot of demand for a Hungry House partnership because as it currently stands, there is no ghost kitchen like us out there and hopefully then create a dynamic where we also have kind of competition from chefs so that we can choose partners who are going to be the most engaged and give the most to the partnership and see this as being valuable, not only from a monetary and financial sense, but also from a brand sense and experiential sense and ability to actually give their followers a taste of their food.
0: Yeah. I love this. I really do. Um, so w- I mean, can you give me an idea of what kind of money these chefs are making, like monthly? Is it like a monthly check or an annual check? Like, what it's a kind monthly of, check. Like, how much money are these guys bringing? in? is that too personal of a question? Or?
1: We're yeah. I mean, I'm not going to disclose their earnings on it right now, but um, you know, obviously this can easily like defray like a good chunk of their rent. If you think about that, we're doing this out of two locations too. So the goal here is, and the flywheel we hope to create is that as we have more and more hungry house locations, we can pay, obviously our royalties are going to be higher and higher because their menu is launched across more locations. And then from that, we can work with bigger and bigger chefs. We create more and more demand for Hungry House locations because then their followers can access their food. The royalties continue to increase. And we can essentially build, hopefully, what is a money-making machine for these chefs that we're going to be really fortunate to work with in the future.
0: Yeah. Um, anything, any element of this that we have not discussed yet that you think is like glaringly obvious that we need to get into?
1: <laughs> um. I mean like i would i would say one thing that's pretty critical that we thought about is just how important the connection to our native website is in this whole ecosystem that's the
0: kind of the next thing i was hoping to talk about yeah um, was just the, the the tech stack how are you, yeah. where are you building this what technology are you leveraging like what is the best practice what does that logistically look like
1: Yeah, so I spent a lot of time in technology. at where I oversaw a product. And so we were always looking at all the other platforms, what their capabilities were. And I came out of that experience with a pretty clear point of view on what we were going to use for Hungry House. Uh, We built our tech stack on top of Square. And so um, this is not always like... That's uncommon. I know. And so acknowledging that, um, there were some really key capabilities that made me excited to use Square. And... The Square team knows I like sing their praises all the time. Um, they obviously have an open API. So yep. what that allows you to do is a lot of custom builds and features that I felt were going to be important to my brand over the long term. So this is Square
0: for restaurants. Yes. Specifically. Got
1: it. Um, but the broader ecosystem is actually pretty dynamic. So what I realized from Square was that they actually acquired a website builder called Weebly. Um, Weebly is now integrated into the Square platform. And what is so cool about that and what I needed was I needed a really robust multi-brand um, experience for customers who are going to land on my website. And what a lot of the competitive platforms do is they simply treat it more like a category than a true multi-brand experience. And that's okay. But I didn't want that. You know, you typically have the carousel on the top listing all the brands in the same font and you just toggle between each one. You see the background photo change, maybe one sentence description if you're lucky. But to me, that absolutely did not do justice to our chefs. And I also realized that my traffic to my website was going to be to the individual chef pages because of their followers. And I wanted to give each of my chefs their own link, their own like Sub page in the website. Yeah. yeah. Just so they felt like when their influencer, when their followers landed on the website, they weren't like, what are these other chefs? What's going on? Why am I here? I wanted them to land on the website and be like, yeah, I'm here to buy Woldy's food. Mm. I love Woldy. I'm on Woldy's page. This makes sense. I'm going to go buy that mushroom adobo. So what Square had that the others did not was, and I, I totally hacked this system, but I essentially was able to pull through all the chef's items um, that are organized as categories, through to each of their individual web pages, that are powered by the Weebly builder. So we basically pulled the commerce capabilities out of a pure, like ecom online store capability, and pulled it into the website, um, making the multi brand experience more possible and more robust. So
0: you're selling the events, basically the this this uh, merchandise or this what's the word you use? The commerce features yeah. are being plugged into the the pages of the chefs.
1: Yeah. So we built like a normal website. Got it. And then we basically used the Square for Restaurants platform to have all of the items there, much like you would do for any point of sale. Got it. And then because that Square for Restaurants is integrated into their Weebly site builder, we were able to pull a lot of those items through Into the web builder, we did a bunch of custom code. What do you mean by items? The actual like physical items you see that are like the dishes you want to purchase. Got it. And so um, we then did a bunch of custom code on top of that to like make it functional and pretty and all that. Weebly framing yeah
0: so what you're what i'm really what i'm getting is that the the is it weebly yeah weebly gave you more flexibility to customize the the user experience yeah
1: squares it's and it's really the square website builder now they probably wouldn't want me to call it weebly yeah um but that is where the functionality comes from and the square website builder is 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 fantastic
0: Cool. So, what else are you integrating on top of? You said there was an open API. So, what other parties or what other tools are you bringing in to round off the full experience?
1: So, um, this for me was really important in terms of the decision because what it meant was that any platform that I wanted to work with was had a more had a greater likelihood of being integrated with Square than if I had gone with the Toast. Toast I did has the
0: Toast menu, the the POS system here.
1: Oh, that's for the other partner that operates out of the space. Oh, okay, I got it. So we are fully on Square, and so what this meant was that any partner that I wanted to work with likely wouldn't get held back by a long API integrations queue. Toast was like quoting six to nine months for a lot of platforms um, last year. I don't know if that has changed, but I didn't want to choose a platform and then realize, oh my God, Toast doesn't integrate it with it. I'm screwed. Square having an open API gives you a lot more functionality in terms of making sure your functionality and your menu can play with other platforms. So we then have integrated everything around it. We use Craftable Foodager for our supply chain inventory. We leverage Flash Order for our kiosk uh, solution. It's a small company, but integrates with Square. And so that's been a really amazing kiosk product for us
0: in what way does your kiosk intro, uh, integrate with square like ordering through the kiosk is that what you're talking about
1: ordering through the kiosk but it also like pulls all the items and pictures through From and the, so the website yeah Got so it. you can see all of the yeah item photos yeah. and everything through it What was that called again it's flash order flash order
0: thank you uh you said footager um what were the other ones
1: um Then we also use Homebase for scheduling, which is integrated. We also partner with... Let me think about my whole tech stack. We also use MailChimp for our emails. We leverage um, Mies for our recipes. Love Mies. Love Mies. Love Josh. Great product there.
0: Um, I I mean, just the... The scalability of, of of recipes is probably yeah. one feature that you guys use a lot. Absolutely, but um,
1: it's it, amazing yeah. for the team and also one thing that was always missing from recipe tech I felt before was actually the the point of view that Josh has so beautifully brought into this product, which is that people are using it to cook. You need photos, like yeah, that's it's really helpful. Too. Yeah. and and it is completely allowed kitchens to move off of paper printed recipes so that if i am working with my head of culinary ops andrew and we're like hey we need to adjust the spice mix and our braised chickpeas we literally update it we tell everyone hey the recipe's updated but we don't have to reprint anything because they're using it on the ipads yeah
0: i will say uh, are there any other text elements you want that's
1: will? that's pretty much the main pieces of our tech stack got it i will say that
0: Mies and uh, Square are both affiliates. So if you guys are interested in those platforms, please go to the show notes. (laughs) Use my links. I'm trying to be better about communicating how you can support this mission to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Thank you in advance. So the only other thing I want to discuss before we go to the speed round is where the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry on that note of transformation. How have you, I think we're going to transform the industry. We need to transform individuals individually, like one person at a time. So how have you transformed in your time in the industry? How are you a better woman today than you were in 2015?
1: I think that I have realized it takes so many different pieces of the puzzle to like make the change you want to see. I think that I got into this industry being like, it is all about sourcing from farms. Yeah. But then I realized that the change actually happens in a really complex multi-layered system. Cause then I was like, well, it's actually all about the allocation of dollars. And then I was like, where do the, do- the dollars come from our ability to like tell stories to consumers that want to buy this product and then the consumers are coming through technology. And I've, I've just broadened that perspective where I thought maybe solutions were more simplistic than they were. And it was just like, okay, choose to source here. Yeah. But then, you know, I've, I've kind of found myself like entering down this long journey across the value chain where right now I, I think entirely about how do we acquire customers and tell stories they care about? Because that actually allows me to make the change mm-hmm. that I want to see in the industry. Yeah. And you've got to connect all those dots. Yeah.
0: And, I, and I love that sentiment. And I think that's why the, if you change the restaurant industry, you're going to change the world. Because what we are, in this industry is influencers, and we always have been, yeah. is the food and beverage industry going back hundreds of years. Yes. We're the center of communities. we were where you went to get your information, to get your news, to do your politics, yep. to influence people. Yeah. And well, I think that, we need to reconnect with that part of what we do as restaurant owners and operators the influence the change the the sharing the stories the the building our communities protecting our communities that's what the fuck we do you know like that's what it's about
1: absolutely i mean if Like, I always think about the fact that, like, if food, if we didn't care about food or if the stories weren't important, you and I would be chugging Soylent all the time for our nutrients. And that's how we would survive. But guess what? We're not because Soylent sucks. (laughs) And I will say that. And and food needs to have meaning. It has to it's imbued with like all of this historical context and like generations of legacy. It is the primary forum through which you catch up with others. You learn new things. You meet people who change your life through like, you know, your professional world or your personal world, whatever it is, food is at the center of these major things that happen. And so I think like you, we cannot pretend to strip away all the meaning down to like basic nutrients or technology, Um, But I also think like one thing that has become really important to my own operations of Hungry House now and the way that we think about doing things is the introduction of technology doesn't have to mean the absence of hospitality. It just allows for different parameters that need to be controlled to still deliver a hospitality driven experience. And I think that that's exciting and that's the work that we want to do is how can food still feel like food and all the meaning associated, the excitement, the culture from it, the new learnings you can have and the impact, but still leverage technology and kind of twist it to serve those needs, to serve what ultimately consumers want. And I think that that's the general uneasiness we've all had about ghost kitchens because it has been devoid of those pieces that are rooted in hospitality. And that's what restaurateurs and chefs have always understood And I think why ghost kitchens haven't made sense for a while. The
0: follow-up question to that, how have you transformed, is how does the industry need to transform going to the future? I think you just answered it. (laughs) So uh, we're going to take our last break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to bust out a speed round. This episode is brought to you by MyRestaurantCFO.com MyRestaurantCFO exists because their experience over the years has revealed all the frustrations, bottlenecks, and pain points restaurant owners experience when managing their establishment. Beyond their understanding of all the ills that plague the restaurant industry, MyRestaurantCFO realizes that restaurants are like snowflakes. No two are the same, so they avoid the cookie-cutter approach. MyRestaurantCFO CFO's goal is to be your partner in success by learning all there is to know about your business and putting together a custom solution that gives you only what you need and to be the guiding hand that helps you achieve your goals. My restaurant CFO partners with restaurants to simplify financial management by offering full service bookkeeping, payroll, and CFO services. Spending more on a CFO will actually improve your profitability and help you achieve a a better work life balance with my restaurant CFO. You'll be able to focus your time on positive customer experiences, always know how your money is working for you and where you can save. No learning curve, and no more late nights trying to make sense of your financial ecosystem. When you partner with my restaurant CFO, they'll provide accurate weekly and monthly reporting, trend analysis for easy forecasting, improved control over vendor cost, complete financial analysis, and recommendations sourced from over 30 years of operational experience and 10 years of consulting experience on how to save more money. If you're ready to start making the right decisions for the growth of your business, your call to action is to go to myrestaurantcfo.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you will get a one hour consulting session with the founder and partner of myrestaurantCFO.com, Miguel Miranda, also a past guest on the show. That's myrestaurantCFO.com/slash unstoppable. Restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend pop menu answering. Pop menu answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Within the pop menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests here, and even send follow-up links via text message. Pop Menu Answering picks up your phone 24-7, 365 days a year, allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most, prevent lost customers, and impress your guests with Pop Menu Answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at pop slash unstoppable go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about pop menus full collection of tools at pop backslash unstoppable we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success
1: Work ethic.
0: What is your biggest weakness?
1: Hmm. I would say um, probably working on too many things at the same time.
0: What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team?
1: Whether they have an inherent uh, drive to go above and beyond.
0: What is your biggest challenge today?
1: prioritizing
0: how are you overcoming it
1: honestly uh taking more time to like like more meditative things to really think about like what bubbles up to the top for what needs to get done now so going for a run you know not going back to back meetings really making sure we get the right things done yeah
0: share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team this is a core value a way to be
1: mm. look around and is there a way that you could be helping a team member
0: what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team so this is something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants but not common throughout the industry something that you do to go above and beyond to serve the guest
1: we proactively engage as a ghost kitchen with customers coming to our storefront asking if they need help answering questions
0: what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator setting the table what's the biggest lesson from that book
1: the idea that the employees are really your front line of understanding how to create the most meaningful relationships with your customers i love that
0: what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well
1: enough or often enough? Hmm. Finding ways quickly to... Finding ways to scalably delegate their tasks so that they can take care of themselves to be better leaders.
0: What is one thing you've outsourced? So something that you could never do as well in-house so you outsource to do it, to execute this thing for you.
1: I outsource the creation of recipes. I don't, yeah. <laughs> we do not pretend. I do not want to, I do not want to create the new food trends. I want to enable others to create them. And we already talked a lot
0: about uh, technology, but we'll give you an opportunity here to echo one piece of technology you've recently adopted. That's had a huge impact on your operation, whether it's communication, profitability, uh, anything along those lines, efficiencies ingest ingest you didn't mention that one. what is ingest
1: ingest.ai um, an amazing reporting platform that is truly built for restaurants and allows us to better understand our sales channels sales trends gives me amazing daily reports we use this internally but then also are creating dashboards for our chefs to almost be able to see and manage their own business
0: so what exactly is ingest like, what is Ingest
1: it is a restaurant data platform got that it. manages uh, your basically your visibility in your business got it
0: and this is the last question open your ears it's a doozy get ready for it <laughs> if you got the news you'd be leaving this world tomorrow all the memories of you your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave by behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy what would those three pieces of wisdom
1: be That is a doozy, a doozy. <laughs> That is a doozy you warned me though um I think that as someone who has gone through like a lot of challenges with chronic illness it's definitely the idea of taking care of yourself one the second would be the concept of raising your hand because you don't if you don't raise your hand for opportunities for things like nothing will come to you. Yeah. Speak it into the world. Yeah. And like it might not be exactly what you want to get, but it will lead to a path where you're closer to it or you discover what you actually want to get. You
0: gotta tell the universe what you need before it will give it to you. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's really the concept of like, how are you going to create your life that yeah, you that's, love that's living? Yeah. So, I think, um, part three would be like, I, I think that ultimately remembering that you can't do everything alone, like starting this business or even any challenge that I've had in my life. It has been like, I call in, i starting this business. I called in every favor I had. I was like, how do I do this? How do I do that? You know, like, who do I know? And I felt so grateful that I had invested in a network all these years in the industry. And it's like this concept of just like giving without that expectation of return, because then it, it happens and you need help and you actually can go and call people. And that was one of the most rewarding experiences was the ability to call in support that I had known I was building, but hadn't ever really plugged into before. And I love it. Yeah. Awesome
0: stuff. Kristen, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank we you. actually discovered you because during this question, uh, Corey called you out. The next question I have coming for you, which is who do you respect and admire and believe we make a great guest mentor like you made for us today. Uh, if they were a guest on the show, you'd absolutely be tuning in to hear their perspectives <laughs> and what they got going on. Who is that person for you?
1: um, I would say Martha Hoover from Patashu in Indianapolis.
0: Patashu, Martha?
1: Who? Martha Mar- Hoover. Martha so Hoover. So we license uh, her, like one. Of, we collaborate with her for one of her brands, Apocalypse Burger. It's the burgers on our menu. I met her at a conference years ago. We turned to each other and she was like, you're going to work for me. I was like, great. So when I left Dig, I actually consulted for her. Nice. She started her restaurants in 1989 and basically people were like, this is really cute, but you are um, going to fail because you're just like – a wife who should be at home with the kids. And she's like, I'm a former sex crimes prosecutor and I'm going to make some good, like good food in Indiana. She has built an empire 15 restaurants later. She is one to contend with. She was doing urban farming in the nineties. She has the most incredible philosophy on employees, how to take care of them. She is people there have been there 20 years, 30 years Um, working with her was Truly one of the most inspirational projects I've ever worked on. And she absolutely should be on this podcast.
0: Beautiful. Look out, Martha. I would love to get you on this show. I'm sold. I can't wait for it to happen. And hopefully you accept the invitation. And just thank you so much, Chris. And thank you for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your perspectives. And uh, it was really cool. I, I really enjoyed talking to you today. There is no question. You are unstoppable.
1: <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Kristen Barnett. And I really enjoyed today's conversation. I really enjoyed how Kristen got into the details of digging In their sourcing process and how they had their commissary and uh, just, just the whole process behind that I thought was really interesting. She got into great detail, and I really love how they're taking the best of both worlds, uh, IE the dining experience and the, the benefits of, uh, digital eating ghost kitchens and also creating opportunity for people. I feel like, there's a lot of people that got involved that were just trying to get rich fast in trying to take the path of release resistance. And the obstacle is the way I truly believe that. And it's about doing the hard thing to create opportunity for other people. And I think Kristen understands that. And she's, she's doing that uh, in this model. And I think it's a really interesting model. I'm excited to watch them grow and scale. It's going to be great. Uh, And if you guys are enjoying this podcast and you want more podcast episodes like it, please give us your support. So one thing we're trying to do right now Uh, that i think is like really exciting is we're trying to build up our youtube channel i'm I'm traveling on site i'm going to all these great places and i'm trying to get a full-time videographer to be with me we have some people that have helped me and hopefully i can continue to work with them but uh we need to grow our youtube channel we need to sell ad space on that uh we need to find a sponsor for this basically so if you subscribe to our YouTube channel. That will really help me sell this thing. So head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable. Subscribe, start watching these interviews on YouTube and that'd be amazing. Thank you in advance. And obviously like always, I always say you can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can share this podcast with everybody and anybody, you know, and thank you in advance. Uh, So as you're listening to this, I am on my way to Bend, Oregon to help some friends uh, take a U-Haul across the country. We're going out to Bend and we're going to drive back to New Hampshire. But while I'm out there, I'm hoping to pick up a couple interviews and um, I'd love to connect with you. If you're in Bend, Oregon, you're a fan of the show, you want to connect, reach out to me. And I cannot say goodbye before thanking Jared Parisi over at Sumadre a podcast for all the hard work behind the scenes with the editing and the copywriting. Uh, can't do it without you, buddy. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.